Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we hear about a new history of the Irish Sea and how the increasing number of loggerhead turtles becoming stranded on our shores is a worry for naturalists. Now this evening, I have in my hands a fascinating new book. It's called The Turning Tide, a biography of the Irish Sea. It's a great mixture of travelogue, nature and history and it fully explores that stretch of water which divides us and Wales. Its author, John Garr, spoke to me from his home in Wales, and he started off by telling me how this journey for him began through a nautical chart. So yeah, it's it's based on uh, an Imre nautical chart, which uh, describes uh, St George's Channel, which of course is the problematically named stretch of water between uh, Ireland and Wales. Um, and the whole book came into being because there was a European-funded project uh, called Ports Past and Present, and they were looking for some artists to in some ways interpret that stretch of water. So basically, it's the stretch of sea if you draw a line between Dublin and Hollyhead to the north, and then from, say, Fishguard to Rosslare in the south. That's the patch of water. And as a writer, I was thinking, that's quite an interesting thing. I could probably write some poems or do something else. And once I started to read my way into it, uh, because this was during the period of the first lockdown, um, I found that there was such a bountiful mass of things to say and explore about it. So it's a sort of travel book, but because of lockdown, I couldn't travel anywhere. So I basically got myself an empty bookcase put it in one corner of my study. I've filled it now with books about the Irish Sea and mythology and natural history and all the rest of it. And then, of course, once the lockdown restrictions were lifted, I got my push bike out and took it on the ferry. When you arrived here, you started visiting a lot of wildlife sites, seabirds. Um, Yes, well, if you um, look at the map, all of the various ports serving Ireland and Wales are all within close proximity to some superb wildlife sites. So Ross Lair, I mean, there are black guillemots nesting in the harbour walls in in Ross Lair. And then just a a short turn hop away or turn flight away, you've got the screeching turneries at Our Lady's Island, and then you've got the gannetry on Great Salty. Um, And then, of course, the Pembrokeshire ports are near to some superb seabirds uh, sites. And, of course, those seabirds are to be seen as you actually... Um, cross St George's Channel and cross the Irish Sea from uh, one place to another. And then in the case of Dublin, of course, you've got um, a fantastic uh, wildlife site right in the city because Brent geese, which uh, fly down to feed on things like eelgrass in Dublin Bay, have found that the supplies of eelgrass have diminished. So they've adapted to that by feeding on uh, grass in parks and so on. And if you get up early and go to the roost at uh, North Bull Island, you'll see these skeins of geese honking their way across the city. And it was um, important to me because part of the idea behind this was to promote green tourism. Um, it was important to me as a 63-year-old overweight man with two kinds of arthritis to prove that you can get them easily. So I basically put my push bike on the ferry and actually went to um, see all of these places. You talk about crossing the Irish Sea, but it's always been a passageway between the two countries. And the first significant landing after all the Saints, Scholars and Stone Age and Bronze Age travellers, the Norman invasion. We have an idea in Ireland that it was this one great event, but it wasn't like that at all. 
No, I mean, there were sort of uh, advanced parties, small advanced parties. Uh, and of course, by then, um, the the power of the Normans had actually sort of be- begun to arrange itself in different ways. So you had the new barons of uh, southwest Wales and so on, and uh, you know the the the, the castle of uh, Pembroke and so on. So they were the ones actually sallying forth from there. And um, the clue we have to how difficult it was for them to do it is if you look at the Bayou Tapestry and you see the pictures of the Norman boats, which are basically the same shape as the Viking boats. So it's a long boat with sails. The Normans who were travelling across from Pembrokeshire to uh, Wexford um, would have been taking soldiers clad in male, so they were armour-plated, so therefore if they went over the side, they were dropped to the bottom very quickly. And of course, they were taking armoured horses with them, because part of the secret of the Norman success was that they had horses, so they had um, soldiers on horses, then uh, matching up that with uh, with infantrymen. But it's a very interesting um, uh, period when um, Welsh and um, uh, Irish history um, connected directly because it was from uh, Pembrokeshire that um, the uh, small uh, invasion forces, as you suggest, small parties really, uh, reconnoitred, then claimed a headland at Baginburn, and then gradually, of course, then uh, became... Uh, more numerous and more bloody, and so you had the sieges and the takeover of uh, certain parts of the uh, southeast Irish coast. When you say small parties, the first party we know of was, and it's, it's something which is unremarked in Irish history, was by a knight called Raymond Le Gros with 100 men. Yeah, and uh, Raymond Le Gros, um, Gros as in gross or fat, um, yeah, his was a little, uh, little sort of um, uh, advanced party, and of course, one of the tools that the um, that they used was they actually used cattle as a tool, and they had this sort of rodeo where they could actually uh, channel or corral uh, all the cattle into one place, and then sort of release them, and um, all of a sudden, livestock became a part of the the, the Norman weaponry in that case. Because they drive the cattle at their enemies. But they didn't come through Hollyhead, but Hollyhead is really the gateway between the two countries and something, some place you've spent quite a bit of time. Yeah, I, I, I have to admit, I fell in love with Hollyhead. I mean, it's a fairly gritty you place. Were the first person. Uh, no, no, I've, no. I, um, I would cite um, a fellow writer called Harrod Price. She's a Welsh language writer and she's written a deliriously. Um, enthusiastic um, letter about uh, uh, Hollyhead. Once it gets under your skin, it really does get under your skin. But as you point out, it's the proximity between Hollyhead and Dublin, or between Hollyhead and Ireland, that makes it such a a central place in the history, not only of of Wales and the UK, but of of Ireland. Um, Hollyhead is 60 miles away from Dublin, it's 300 miles, 300 miles away from London, and therefore it was a place where people would uh, gather information about what was going on in Ireland. And once the steam packet services, or once the packet services, even before the steam packet services, connected the two countries, it was a busy place of traffic for gun runners, spies, uh, people leaving Ireland, seeking work in uh, in Britain, certainly um, after the Second World War and so on. So yeah, it was a real um, a very important uh, destination and sometimes place of um, return to Ireland. You you go through as well a lot of the characters uh, who went through here, the all the main figures of Irish history and also the body of Terence McSweeney, one person who was not 
though enamoured with it, was uh, Dean Jonathan Swift. I'd quote a poem that which you <laughs> quote: "Lo, here I sit at Holy Head with muddy a- with muddy ale and mouldy bread, all Christian victuals stink of fish, and where my enemies would wish." Yeah, well, he was a bit stranded in Hollyhead. Of course, I mean, it's in the nature of Hollyhead that you can get stranded there very easily because they built this huge breakwater to shelter the place. It became a harbour of refuge. And so a lot of ships could actually sort of um, uh, end up uh, there, um, forced to stay there because of um, strong and and, uh, gusting winds. Uh, Jonathan Swift, of course, was famously a miserablist. I don't think he'd been happy if he'd stayed in the Hilton, let alone in this um, rather sad place. But he did miss the Irish porter and so on. And uh, as you've proved, he had enough time to not only get a bit depressed by Hollyhead, but to vent his spleen by by writing about it. That's the other thing, of course, that there were a lot of travellers passing through uh, ports like Hollyhead who all um, make their mark. Um, um, I'm, I'm thinking of um, uh, m- more recently uh, tra- travellers passing through Hollyhead and they, you know, they're returning uh, like Kerry Nidocherty in her book Thin Places. She's returning to a place she left. She grew up in Derry during the Troubles. She sort of left Ireland entirely. And for her, the journey back through Hollyhead was um, a real emotional uh, one. And you've got that sense, really, that with some people, they're leaving behind a home. They're moving towards the hopes of the future. Um, there is that great nervousness. And I mean, that is something that you certainly find in all ports. I think that's part of, on one hand, the magic of a port, to know that you can leave a country behind and reinvent yourself. Um, but also leaving behind the support systems of, you know, the small Irish villages and so on, uh, which uh, in their closeness uh, would have actually made people feel very, very um, uh, warm. And then they go off to a foreign country, to big cities like Liverpool and Manchester. And yes, you can be anonymous, but you can also be very lonely in such places. You obviously spent quite a bit of time in and around Wexford and you have one tale which struck me, that of how the place called Dollar Bay got its name. Oh yeah, well that's a that's a um, you know there are lots and lots of um, stories about um, uh, ships being sunk and all the rest of it, um, and certainly ships being sunk with um, lots of gold on board. Um, there were you know in, in Hollyhead you had the sinking of the Royal Charter in a big storm, which Charles Dickens reported on for the Times. But as you say, in uh, in Dollar Bay um, there was a a, a ship uh, which was carrying uh, gold on board, and then the crew being rather greedy. Um, and um, fairly evil, really, uh, decided to bump off um, uh, the captain and his wife and so on. And they they did that. It was a sort of rather bloody affair. And then they actually got in a small boat and actually took the gold they'd actually managed to... Um, to uh, to thieve uh, onto this boat, but of course um, the boat was actually this little boat was uh, weighted down too heavily, so they actually had to jettison some of the gold. It's probably the most expensive sort of ballast that anyone has ever sort of thrown uh, over the side, um, and then these guys actually sort of reached the mainland, and because they were sort of amateur master criminals, um, they did the thing you're not meant to do if you've stolen a lot of gold, uh, which is to start splashing it around. So they had a couple of uh, nights of wild drinking, and they were sort of paying for things where they were paying for, you know, drinks, one imagines, with gold and so on. Uh, And they were eventually hunted down, they were tracked down to Dublin, and uh, there's a very uh, sort of 
cautionary end to their lives when uh, some of their uh, bodies are then displayed on uh, the banks, I think, of the, the Liffey or certainly somewhere around uh, Dublin as a warning to people uh, that they should um, not um, kill the captain of a boat and um, and um, steal uh, all the gold because ultimately um, they would come to a cautionary end. You're particularly enamoured with seabirds and you quote extensively Richard Murphy, the poet Richard Murphy and his love of seabirds as well. I, I fear that I have to sort of confess that I, at times, I believe I am a seabird in the same way that um, you know um, Shakespeare's uh, witches had, you know, the cats as familiars, uh, animal familiars, or the books of Philip Pullman cast these animal familiars. There are times when I actually think I am a Manxie otter. Um, the first job I ever got in 1976 was on the island of Bardsey, and I was studying Manxie waters. And I'd even done a little stint of studying Manxie waters when I was 14, and I've just loved those birds. And we've got half the world's population which nest on uh, just the the Welsh bird islands alone. And of course, they're now being encouraged to return to Great Salty, where last winter they successfully eradicated rats. And if you do that, it helps uh, Manxie waters. So yes, the, the, the Manxie water is one of the the, the the most striking birds of uh, the Irish Sea, along with uh, the gannet, which with a six-foot wingspan is even more uh, striking. But then there's this other smaller bird, the small petrel. It's about the size of a house sparrow, so about five and a half inches long, not much, not much bigger than a budgie. And yet this bird actually flies far out to sea. It goes out into wide ocean, and it patters along the surface, stirring up uh, plankton. And as you say, uh, Richard Murphy found himself living on High Island, and there he actually found, um, which I thought was marvellous, he found a storm petrel nesting in an old hermit's skull. And it was the fact that he was actually in a place which had all sorts of long ecclesiastical roots that encouraged Richard Murphy, the poet, to blend his descriptions of storm petrels with all the sort of language you'd have uh, for describing church matters and religious matters and so on. And yes, uh, Richard Murphy's um, autobiography, The Kick, and some of the poems he wrote about the storm petrel evoke this marvellous little bird, which many people won't see them at sea. It's such a tiny little thing. You, you'll be lucky, even with some strong binoculars, to see much more than a speck. It's got a little bit of white in it, but basically, imagine trying to spot uh, something the size of a house sparrow out at sea. John, it's been lovely to speak to you, and that's at the end, gives us the perfect excuse to play again Richard Murphy reading his own poem, High Island. This poem, which I call High Island, begins with a distant view of the island and it gets closer and closer into the heart of it, the, the bird life, the monastic calm. A shoulder of rock sticks high up out of the sea, a fisherman's mark for lobster and blue shark. Fissile and stark, the crust is flaking off. Seal rock, gull rock, cove and cliff. Dark mounds of mica schist. A lake, mill and chapel. Roofless, one gable smashed, lie ringed with rubble. An older calm, the kiss of rock and grass, pink thrift and white sea campion, flowers in the dead place. 
Day keeps lit a flare round the North Pole all night. Like brushing long wavy hair, petrels quiver in flight. Quietly as the rustle of an arm entering a sleeve, they slip down to nest under altar stone or grave. Round the wrecked Laura, needles flicker, tacking air quicker and quicker to rock, sea and star. The poet Richard Murphy reading his poem High Island. And that book by John Gower is called The Turning Tide. It's published by Harper North, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, and its sale price is £20 sterling. There has been a worrying increase in the instances of loggerhead turtles being washed up on our Atlantic coast. This warm water species is native to the southeast of the United States, but three have arrived here in recent weeks. It's a cause of concern, and Joanna McNicholas has this report. Last year, Ireland had no recorded strandings of loggerhead turtles, but in the past few weeks, three have come ashore in County Mayo. So I went in search of the people who care for and rehabilitate these juvenile turtles. I'm Gemma O'Connor. I'm the Live Stranding Network Coordinator with the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. I'm based um, down near Glosh on the bottom of the Mullet Peninsula. So I got a call from um, a friend of mine, Siobhan, and her husband was out walking on Glosh Beach and took a photograph of this little turtle that had washed ashore. Um, so I went straight away to to pick it up, not knowing what size it was. But when I got there, it was it was tiny. It was only the shell was like 7.5 inches. So I wrapped it in a towel and just brought it back to the car. And I had um, let Irish Whale and Dolphin Group know. I brought it home and I left it be for a number of hours just to see what anything happened. But unfortunately, unfortunately, no, it was deceased. The day after I did that interview with Gemma O'Connor, some exciting news came in. Um, a second loggerhead turtle came ashore, this time five kilometres to the north at Ellie Backshore. And this was found by Cormac de Rochta, who was quick off the mark, in fairness, him getting help, um, what to do with it. So he brought that home to his house and followed instruction again from the aquarium on what to do with it overnight. And thankfully, it has so far survived and it's en route to Dingle Aquarium at the moment. Hi, my name is Tom Doyle and I'm a marine biologist based at University College Cork. I did my PhD on sea turtles and since then I've ended up being the national coordinator of turtle strandings in Ireland. What's happening this year, we've had three records so far in the last month. So two in January and one just um, yesterday. Um, so there's definitely something going on. It's And I guess what we would expect is with climate change, we'll probably see more of this. The problem we have is when they do wash up in Irish waters, it's normally very bad for them because loggerhead sea turtles or there may be another species of sea turtle called the Kemp's Ridley. When these wash up in Irish waters, it's the water's too cold for them. And they, and they, and often 70 percent of the sea turtles that are recorded in the last 20 years have washed up dead. Um, so most often when I go to collect a, a sea turtle, it's dead. But sometimes they can still be alive, like the one that washed up yesterday on Bell Mullet. That one was still alive. It actually still, you could see that there was some movement in that sea turtle. And so that's great. When we get a sea turtle like that, we can rehabilitate it. Most loggerheads, I know there was a study carried out for, between France and some of the UK turtles recently. 
And what they found out that most, the vast majority of, of, of sea turtles that wash up on our beaches have come from Florida. So what's happening now is unfortunately, as some sea turtles get caught out. So as they're going across the Azores current, or they get caught up in the North Atlantic drift and that's taking them further north than they probably want to be because the sea turtles are reptiles. So their body temperature is the same as the environment that they're swimming in. So if the water that they're swimming in is 20 degrees, their body temperature is 20 degrees. But unfortunately, as they move up closer to Ireland, the sea temperature is dropping. So, for example, today, the sea surface temperature off Irish waters is about 11 degrees, 10 or 11 degrees, I imagine. So if there's a sea turtle swimming in that, that's well below its normal body temperature. They will they will struggle in that 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 sea sea temperature their body begins to shut down and and they become what's called cold stunned and when they're cold stunned they can't swim they're not strong swimmers and eventually they can get pneumonia and uh, and then they can die and then the wind can carry them ashore and they wash up on our beaches but some of them because the temperature is still 11 they still can function somewhat in that temperature so some of them can survive and that's what we've seen yesterday we have a loggerhead that has washed up on the beach in Bell Mullet, and thankfully somebody spotted it on the high on the high shore mark, and it was flipped upside down. And so it was amazing that that turtle was found because they're really small; they're only the size of a, a shoe, you know, and um, not even the size of that. You know, that animal is struggling, and it will die if it was left on the beach. So thankfully now, uh, Dingle Ocean World Aquarium, they're uh, collecting that turtle today, and they will take it down and will slowly rehabilitate. And that's what's really important. Yeah, my name is Kevin Flannery. I'm uh, the founder and director of Ocean World Aquarium in Dingle. I've been involved in sea fisheries uh, for about 40 years or more, coming from a family tradition of fishermen and the whole lot. And I've been collecting various different species for 30 or 40 years, usually send them up to the Natural History Museum. It's a hobby as well as a job as well as everything else. Basically, uh, loggerhead turtles have are hatch out in the Gulf of Mexico. And then when the, the little ones hatch out from their eggs, they run down into the water and out into the sea. And they stay in what we call the Saragossa Sea, which is the weed. They float on the weed. The weed helps to keep them up. And there they thrive and develop. But the problem is, as we all know, we read every day about the great storms that come up into the Caribbean and into America. And sometimes these turtles get carried too far north. But when they get carried too far north, it gets too cold for them. And basically they get dehydrated, get washed ashore, and quite a lot of them die. When the live ones are brought into your aquarium, how long does the rehabilitation process take? It could take months because we have to build up their their strength. We have it, it, It's a very slow process. The initial process of getting them eating is the big one because you have to get them rehydrated and you can't shock them again by putting them into warm water. So you have to build up their body temperature extremely slowly, only one degree per 24 hours if you're lucky. Slowly build them up. But in that, that is the critical period of time because they could be too dehydrated. They could be in shock. So there's a huge stress factor for them. And this is the critical time. So it's urgent that if people do come across them, that they contact us straight away. They take them and just cover them, but don't heat them. Just cover them. We'll get to them sooner and then we'll get the um, saline solution into them. And what happens then once they are recovered? Luckily, we have been successful 
in quite a lot of the loggerheads and we return them via Aer Lingus or Ryanair down to the Canaries where they have a turtle hospital and they hold on to them and then tag them and release them. Most of the time when the Naval Service were going on humanitarian missions uh, to the Mediterranean, the Irish Navy would uh, do me a favour and take these turtles back down and release them prior to they entering the Mediterranean because the water would be warm, as I say there, and they release them back down there. And some final words of advice from Tom Doyle. I think it's important, like, if, if, if somebody does uh, see a sea turtle to go to the sea turtle rescue and reporting Ireland Facebook page and they can let us know uh, through that but also if you do see a sea turtle and it looks really fresh so that some of them can be badly decomposed so people should be careful too and not just handle them and stuff they should you know be careful handling these things um but if they do see a small one and it's very fresh and it looks perfectly intact what you can do is just pinch the back leg and you can see does it move uh, if you pinch it, you know. Uh, and then you should contact one of the aquaria, so uh, Dingle Ocean World or Atlantic Aquaria or Explorers up in up in County Down. Um, that would be important. And I guess what you can do is just put the turtle in a cardboard box and a towel on the bottom. So just a, a soft or just a towel on the bottom and then you put the sea turtle in that. So a cardboard box, and but don't try and warm it up. Don't put it under a heat lamp. Don't bring it home and put it into your bathtub or anything like that and just then get in touch with us and then we can kind of take it from there. Joanna McNicholas reporting. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcasted on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. <laughs>